and uh, they do a wonderful job, just a precious job, and we're thankful for them. Well, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 7 today, we're going to be looking at some evidences and also our foundation for believing in a global flood and what it means for us today. Genesis chapter 7, I'll begin reading in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on the very same day, Noah and his sons... Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. So when you read that, how many entered the ark? It would be eight. There's Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. So eight in all entered the ark. Peter, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.20 also refers to this when he says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight, people were brought safely through the water. Now there are some lines of evidence that we could If this was a courtroom, we could call them up as witnesses as to whether or not there was a global flood. One would be flood stories all over the world are these flood stories. In Japan, in Egypt, in India... Uh, and in India, they even used the name Noah as part of this long tradition. Thousands of years ago, a great flood came. And they used their pronunciation of Noah. In China, um, which the Chinese language uses what, what is called pictographs. It's kind of like Hebrew. It's little characters that convey a word or an idea. And the the Chinese word for boat or large boat is, it has the character of people, or actually it's mouth, You've heard of mouths. There's, I've got three mouths to feed. That means people. So it has the character of people. Then it has a vessel. And in a third, it has eight. Eight people in a vessel. That's the Chinese word for boat. 
Now, I originally heard this years ago from a, a, a fellow who was part Chinese. He was a preacher, and he was telling how he grew up under this. He had heard this, he knew this, that the Chinese word for boat is eight people in a vessel. But when he became a Christian and he read the story in Genesis of eight people in a large boat, that's when he hit him. Oh, that's what that means. That's where that came from. And uh, we, we had this, uh, uh, but it wouldn't download, but you can Google this and just Google uh, the Chinese word for boat, and it'll bring it up. So you have these uh, flood stories all over the world, uh, and although they have been passed down through generations and, and even thousands of years, uh, and they get distorted because they're not preserved in Scripture, uh, the Scripture gives us the original accurate story. These others uh, tend to exaggerate, distort, and diminish in some cases. So you have these stories, but also another, if we could call another witness, um, here's an interesting discovery in 1935. A Russian test pilot was flying over a mountain range in uh, what is today modern Turkey. His name was Vladimir Roskos Roskovitsky. No problem. I can pronounce a Greek word, but Russian names, no. It was an unusually warm winter, and so ice had melted on top of this mountain range. And the pilot looked down and saw what at first appeared to be a big battleship. And he thought, that's weird. What is a ship doing on top of a mountain where there's no ocean. And so there, when he reported back, they sent a group of excavators and explorers up to find out exactly what this was. This story was originally reported in, in Life Digest back in 1935. And the, de I, the best details are found in a, a book by Dr. James Boyce, who was pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. And uh, Dr. Boyce graduated from Harvard, got a Ph.D. from Cambridge. This, so Dr. Boyce is not a kook. And he goes on record as saying, I think it's it, that they found Noah's Ark. And one of the things he points out is if you, if you went to Turkey today or the borders between Iran and Russia and Turkey, here's this mountain range, and the name of those mountains is Ararat. Now, when you look in chapter 8 and verse 4, it says on the seventh month and the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. 
So Dr. Boyce, after spending many years studying these kind of things, looked at it. Uh, and then just to add to that, the Jewish historian Josephus, who's quite a famous historian in the history of, of the Jews, he wrote about 80 A.D., first century, 2,000 years ago. He wrote in his history that people used to go up Mount Ararat to get relics from the ark and make amulets. You know what an amulet is, right? Not omelet. They, they didn't go up there to get an omelet. <laughs> but they would get these little, make these little crosses, and it was superstitious, but they would come back down and sell them. Josephus reports that in the first century. And in 180 A.D., about three generations later, a pastor named Theophilus mentioned that the ark, as he made his defense for the Christian faith, he said, even the ark can be seen in our day. And up until 1840, there was a monastery on Mount Ararat. Now, uh, it would be puzzling as to why you'd build a monastery on Mount Ararat. There's nobody up there. It's like the Himalayas or Mount Everest. Um, and it's not only uninhabited, it's desolate. Yet they built a monastery until 1840 and an earthquake took it out. But it left behind rock inscriptions like, uh, like uh, tombstones. And on these inscriptions was eight crosses. Why eight? You see, once again, it's not in the Bible, but it's a testimony. It points to it. I'm not going to stake my life on it. And since it is near the borders of Russia and Iran, where uh, governments are not particularly friendly to visitors, and wars, in fact, there's a war going on right now, Ukraine and Russia, not far from that area. And Ararat actually means high mountain. So it's way up, so it's very difficult for people go there. But the few who have have come back and given their testimony. Now there are some who did not come back in faith but they didn't go up in faith either. So again you have a testimony. So you have flood stories you have this ancient discovery that is mentioned back thousands of years, referred to. There's another testimony or a witness that we could call, and that's the fossil records. Now, many scientists and geologists believe in a global flood, and you know why? Not because the Bible says it, but because of the abundance of fossils under the earth. You know, there's a debate, a debate right now over fossil fuels. 
Should we mine and dig and excavate and bring out uh, coal, for example? What is coal? It's the result of compressed earth and animals uh, over thousands of years. They say millions, but the Bible would say thousands until it has just turned into coal. It's compressed with heat. You can find, uh, for example, in Alberta, Canada, if you went up there, there's what's called a dinosaur provincial park. This is the dinosaur park in Alberta, Canada is a 13-mile-long stretch of nothing but dead animals. Fossil. uh, Fossil beds, they call them. Where just, I mean, everything from dinosaurs to turtles and fish and mammals, uh, everything you can imagine, was all lumped together as if in this one stretch of land... They were herded together and then covered over by a tsunami of sediment. And it's amazing. What produced all that? What buried all of the fossils to produce all of the fossil fuels by which today we heat our homes and light them in the utilities? Where's this energy come from? Fossil fuels. And even if they bring in the electric car, you're still going to have to have fossil fuels to build the batteries that run the cars. Kendrick Oil Company estimates that 80% of the gas and the heat and the light and energy in America comes from fossil fuels. Mined from fossil beds. And that there is enough fossil fuel to last us a thousand years. Think of that. That's a lot of fossils. Where did they all come from? Noah's flood is the best explanation available. That's why a lot of scientists believe in a global flood. And by the way, it means that you're heating your home probably on the dead animals that were killed during the flood of Noah. (laughs) So people will heat their homes with the dead animals killed in the flood and argue against the flood. Marine life has even been found in the coal mines of West Virginia. Now, how did that happen? That you would have a fish skeleton derived from coal mines, not along the California coast, but in the middle of the country. So these are, these are stories and discoveries and fossil beds and fossil records but I, I want to and we could belabor that maybe already have but but I want to say this to conclude that portion 
Let's say we have these stories, these, these archaeological discoveries, and, and all of these fossil records. If we didn't have a bit of evidence, we do, we have a lot. But what if we had none? Our faith does not stand on the fossil records that scientists find under the earth. Our faith stands in the Word of God. This is why we believe in a flood. When it comes down to it, you can have your testimonies, but here's the true foundation of our faith is in the Word of God. Now, over time, science and discoveries and archaeology tends to confirm the Word but we don't use the word to confirm the science. Psalm 56 verse 4, David said, In God, whose word I praise, in Him I trust. Whose word I praise. I love that. He praises God's word. He lifts it up above everything. Because you're going to have skeptics on this. And I, I say this because we have a lot of young people. And uh, I want them to know that there are evidences, but they will be denied. They will be ridiculed. One wag wrote when somebody said, What happened to Noah's ark after the flood? He wrote, It was placed with Santa's sleigh right after Christmas. Wherever they put Santa Claus and his sled, that's where they put the ark. In other words, it's all myth. But David said, I praise the word. I like what the old preacher, he was preaching from Genesis and he's preaching about Noah. And unknown to him, some mischievous little boys had come in and, and taken and glued one page to another. And so when he was preaching, he said, he read the text. He said, brethren, today I read my text. Noah took a wife and she was, and then he turned the page. And, it's, and it said, she was 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. <laughs> and he paused a moment. And he looked up and he said, Brothers, this shows you we are truly fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> That's the way we approach God's Word. We praise His Word. We're not going to be knocked off that foundation. Jesus said in Matthew 7, He who builds on me and my words build on a solid rock. So we read it, we believe it, we let science work it out. If they give testimony and, and witness to it, then uh, good for them. But I don't need it. So let's, let's just close this this morning with three ways we should approach the story of Noah. 
How do we look at this? First, we should study the story. Chapter 6 through 9. Read it and then read it again and take notes. It takes up four chapters. That's two more than creation. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show yourself approved unto God. So we should study this. Ponder it. Second, we should believe this story. When we read it in the Bible, let's just haul off and believe it. There is a global flood. God judged the world for sin. Let's not put too much stock in scientific evidence because it fluctuates over time. In 1980, there was a scientist, a geologist named Dr. Stephen Austin. This, actually, this was in 1992. In 1980, Mount St. Helens in Washington State, erupted. And this was called the worst event in American history in terms of catastrophe. Uh, Scores were killed, billions of dollars in damage. Eleven states, there were, ash went to 11 different states. And then, of course, the lava flow that came down. So, uh, Dr. Austin had been skeptical of the dating processes. And so he took, he went up to the, the large crater that the eruption, the volcanic eruption had caused, and he took some, some rocks in 1992 that had been hardened and pressed uh, by the heat, the intensity of the heat. And he sent these rocks uh, surreptitiously, without information, to uh, a place in Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Geochron Laboratories, to have them tested. How old is this, he said. And so they looked at it and did one of their best dating methods, radiometric dating. And they sent him a letter and said, we estimate that these rocks are three and a half million years old. And he laughed. I don't even know if he told them or not, but he just got it out of Mount St. Helens from 10 years ago, 12 years ago. In other words, these rocks were no more and 12 years old. One of the most accurate dating methods missed it by three and a half million years. So that's why David said in God whose word I praise. Psalm 146.3 Put not your trust in princes or in the son of man in whom is no salvation. Men are unreliable witnesses. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. One more thing. Not only should we study the story, believe the story, but we should proclaim the story. We should preach it. We should repeat it. 
We should warn people with it. Jesus did in Matthew 24, verse 37. Jesus said, As in the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were just eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage till the day they entered the ark and knew not till the flood came. They don't know. People, by and large, the, the majority of the population, they never think about the flood of Noah and the implications of it. There was, in the, at the Titanic in the um, early 1900s, the, at the time, the Titanic was the largest available sailing ship and great celebrations when it left port with its hundreds and thousand passengers. And you know the story of the Titanic. Hit an iceberg, sank, and took most of the lives with it. They sent a list back to New York, the harbors of New York. This list was not a list of rich and poor, male or female, classy or low class. All it had was a list, the saved and the lost. That was the two lists. Everything else was ignored. The story of Noah teaches us there's two groups of people when it all comes down to it. The saved and the lost. And Jesus said, when I come back, it's going to be like in Noah's day. Those who are safe with me in the ark and those who perish in the judgment. So I would urge you in using this story that we come to the end of these series on Noah. Ask yourself this question. I have sat through these sermons on the flood and am I in the ark? Am I safe in Christ or am I not? And that is the key question for us today. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, we pray you would lead us so we are safe in Christ just as those in the ark were safe from the flood. We thank you for forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ and ask you to help us today to have that kind of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship with our tithes and our offerings.
Let's stand as we sing this last one.